Hello. And welcome to Pop Tarts. Beep, 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 beep. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in Brooklyn, New York. We love talking to each other about pop culture, and we love talking to you about pop culture. And today, our guest is out of this world. Ooh. Today's guest is a major voice in modern media, and the number of subjects that we could talk to her about are endless. Jenna Wortham is a technology reporter and staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. She co-hosts the New York Times podcast Still Processing with Wesley Morris, one of my personal favorite podcasts ever. And just before her rise to fame at the Times, she was one of Bust's superstar freelancers. She interviewed Diablo Cody for us. She interviewed Solange Knowles for us. She interviewed Sarah Silverman for us. And we are so thrilled by all of her success, and we can't wait to talk to her Welcome, Jenna. So happy to be here. Yay! (laughs) Look at him doing the thing. Wow, humans are animals. It's like all the movements of Tiffany Haddish, but just contained between forehead and chin. Like, I don't want to confront these emotions in, in Walgreens. So obviously, we've known you for a long time, but for Mm -hmm. our listeners, let's start out with a quick overview of your career. Tell us how you made it to the Times and what the corporate culture is like here for a young, brilliant woman such as yourself. Ooh, well, I love this question because Bust was so formative in my journey as a writer. So Emily, thank you for all those times you replied to my emails, you and Lisa Butterworth. Totally. I don't know if I'd be sitting here today if you guys had not responded to my emails with such excitement and rigor. No, seriously. And it was it was really major because I felt really held and supported, even though we never really met. And (laughs) I only met Lisa, you know, after moving to New York, you know, and I think there was just such a like care and consideration and thoughtfulness in the emails. And I and I really just came out of nowhere. So when I was pitching bus as a freelancer, I was living in San Francisco where I moved after I graduated from college and I totally flamed out in college. I went to UVA in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was just on a thread not too long ago about, I guess, a very important game they were playing. And I don't I didn't even have the number saved in my phone. That's how like disconnected I was from just that experience. I was like, who is texting me? I don't care. What was what is going on? <laughs> Um, so, you know, after graduation, I just moved out west and a bunch of friends came too. And we totally just, I think we just wanted like a big break because it was such a rigorous, conservative, weird school. And we were mm-hmm. all these like, you know, blooming freaks and like weirdos and queerdos and just kind of wanted to like figure out who we were. And San Francisco was a good place to do it. And so to support myself, I waitress full time. And I interned, and I interned at a lot of different places, including Wired. And I was at Wired working on The Underwire, which was their culture and tech blog. And I wrote a lot about social media. But I really wanted to get into sort of lengthier profiles, and I really wanted to write about women. I wanted to write about women of color. And it was very hard. I mean, it still is hard if you're writing mostly about tech, you know. Mm -hmm. So I started pitching Bust and started getting, like, yeses, and it was just, like, so major. And I I really learned on the job in, like, the best ways. I remember when I interviewed Sarah Silverman, she was like, your questions sound like they're just, like – asking me to fill in details for my Wikipedia page. And I was like, that is how I prepared. And so like, that was like a learn on the job <laughs> moment where I was like, <laughs> she really called me out. And so I was like, okay, go with your gut. Just like read the room. Stop trying to get the fat. You know what I mean? Like you can fill that in, but just like find out who she is as a person. And, um, you know, Bus just trusted me. Like I, I totally just cold pitched Lisa. And I remember the first thing I pitched you guys and I still have the check. I never cashed it, which Aww. later on someone pointed out, they were like, you could have cashed it and then gotten the cancel check back. And I was like, dang it. Like, <laughs> I didn't have thought about that either. I didn't know I could do that. It was like not, you know, it wasn't small money. So I, I could have used that money. But it was just funny. I still have that so check <laughs> in my apartment in Brooklyn now. Um, But I think so those were early experiences for me of like both being trusted with big name subjects and just being like sent on assignment and really feeling like, wow, I love this. I love doing this. These are the kinds of stories that would have meant so much to me growing up if I could read them. The kinds of things I wish I'd seen or just that I really was always drawn to subjects, both in technology and in culture and pop culture, of people who were self-starters and people who 
knew they didn't fit in, but were making it work. And then what it felt like to do that, you know, and I was thinking about when I interviewed Solange, um, you know, she was really unknown. And I love that first album, Salt Angel and the Hadley Street band or something like that and it was super poppy and she was finding her like kind of Motowny voice but she was also really struggling to be seen as more than Beyonce's little mm-hmm. sister and she wanted to be more alt she wanted to be more emo she wasn't the Houston pageant queen like her sister and it was really special watching her try to molt you know in that moment and that's that's also the thing I love in technology like I loved writing about Snapchat before they got tons of investment and just thinking about like who are the people and the things that are shaping how we move through the world? Um, so then I feel like I'm anti-gravity button on a filing cabinet, but to sort of try to bring it all back to how I got to the Times. In 2008, maybe, I was starting to blog more about social media, and I was writing about Twitter. I was writing about Facebook. The pieces that I were writing were getting picked up by this blog and put out on these big email blasts that were really well-read by tech reporters and editors in New York, which I didn't... I kind of knew, but I didn't really know it was a big deal how much visibility I was getting because I was out in SF, and it's just a total night and day, media, media-wise, between here and there. And the head of the New York Times technology department reached out to me and asked me to have lunch and if I could freelance. And so I was just like in this period of time where I felt like I loved being at Wired. I felt very supported. I had a really hard time with the culture of like coming in at 7 a.m. and having your first blog post at like 9 a.m. I still can't do that. (laughs) Yeah. And I just I feel like it wasn't thoughtful. Like I didn't have this room or this. I was just figuring out what they wanted, not what I wanted to write about. And I wasn't I don't think I was as good at it. So all of that just led to a series of meetings and conversations about what it would look like to blog here and what it would look like to write here. And I was super young. I was 24 and I was really freaked out. And I was just like, I'm good. Like, I just want to wait tables and like go to Pride and, (laughs) you know, like freelance. Like, I feel good about where my life is. And it was just one of these moments where you just kind of have to say yes. And it was... I also remember, too, it was right around the 2008 election. And so I'm sorry, sorry, it was right around the 2004 election. So there was this huge shift happening with Barack Obama and social media. And just I felt like there was a sea change that this job felt like it was a part of. And so that is kind of what got me in the door here. And then that was 10 years ago, over 10 years ago. And I've had so many different jobs at this place, more than I can count. I think the trick is, or what I've always said when people ask me for advice is, you know, this place is a steam cruiser and it has one direction and you're on board or you're not on board and you have to make it work for you. Like it's not going to change directions Mm -hmm. for your individual needs. Like there's a big mission here to a certain type of service and you have to figure out what your own goals are and your own reasons for being here and try to make that muscle work for you. What are your goals and reasons to be here what are you doing well I mean I I wanted to start writing because I liked writing and even though I did terribly in college I really felt and this is this is actually like an engine that's driven most of my career I think in all the different projects that I do but I I never really felt like I saw myself on the shelves I felt like I loved reading you know I remember when I was living in San Francisco I was a religious reader of Jezebel and even went to some of the Jezebel meetups back in the day and no one would use their real names like just their <laughs> handles that they posted under but I didn't post so I'd never handle so it was very awkward um but I just remember feeling like wow this is this you know precipitous moment where we're getting to read about the experience of women and like very lots of different types of women and it's incredible and like I just I've never experienced this my whole life except talking to other women and at the same time back then and you know 2005 2006 it was still like a very limited selection of experiences you know from women so I think I was both really motivated to kind of jump into the to the that pool and then also feeling like but I know I can add something else because you don't read about non-white women in technology you don't read about how non-white people use technology there still aren't as many stories about women in culture who are creators, you know, so I felt like very motivated. So my goal and the thing that I'm always thinking about is like, how do I make people like me, whatever that means, but just how do I make sure that people feel seen when they open visual culture or they look at popular culture, they look at popular media? Because it does matter so much. Mm -hmm. It's so pervasive and it's everywhere. And it shapes, it shapes so much of how we think and what we do, even when we're thinking, even if we're not aware of it, it, it totally does. Let's talk more about non-white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the the three of us sitting at this table, we part of all of our jobs is is deciding what's cool and bringing those things that we think are cool to our 
readers slash listeners. Mm -hmm. And I love listening to Still Processing. You guys are always talking about exactly what I'm thinking about. Mm. Um, Just recently, you guys talking about Jordan Peele and us. You were talking about Michelle Obama's memoir. You were talking about Colin Kaepernick and his position at Nike, Mm. which is so much more than just a spokesperson. Mm -hmm. And Callie and I, when we have our story meetings, it's been noted to us in the past, like, have you noticed that everyone that you're pitching is a non-white person? Mm, Interesting. And we're like, well, that's who's making the things. (laughs) You're like, I'm sorry, did you not want Taraji on the last cover? Like, (laughs) you know? It's not necessarily a criticism. It's just sort of noted. Mm. And I listen to your show and I'm like, that's a show about the most important things about pop culture. And I'm like, oh yeah, everybody that they're talking about pretty much is a person of color. And then Callie and I are looking at the things that we're planning to bring to story meetings and it's it's often the same way mm-hmm. and what is happening in our culture yeah. that that is the case I'm trying Ooh. you know there is I mean people of color invented rock and roll mm-hmm. it's not like mm-hmm. all of a sudden uh, <laughs> right. black people are making things yeah that's not yeah. the case right. but all of a sudden hmm. and maybe maybe it's part of what you were talking about where there are suddenly so many outlets because of the internet or because of streaming services that there's just so much more content yes um mm-hmm. that the doors are open to all the creators and the cream is just rising to the top for sure um but why is it that all of the relevant pop cultural content I'm not going to say all, obviously, but so much of it. it. We don't have to go searching for relevant, fascinating pop culture content by people of color. It's literally everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, great question. I love this. I feel like there are a couple different things happening. The first thing that I think is happening is there are a lot more diverse writers, thinkers, creators making all kinds of content. And I know people hate when when we use the word content to talk about like Instagram or like an article, but it it does apply. I'm just saying like, I just think that, you know, if you go on Instagram or you go on Twitter or you go on TikTok, you know, the most exciting and creative and interesting things that are on there tend to rise up to the top. And then those are the creators that people look to or they try to think about like okay so who is bad bunny or like who is this person like and and i feel like that's where a lot of writers and editors get their get their ideas from for for one thing i also think that the the i mean it's tricky saying all this because at the end of the day there is still you know in media in television in publishing these are all still predominantly white industries and businesses and they are You know, the stats about the number of women directors is so Mm -hmm. astonishingly and, like, disturbingly low. So it's not really like women are directing all these amazing films. And so I love how excited we get about all the women of color that are starring in all these films and TV shows. But I also worry that they're not the ones who are writing the content. They're not the ones who are writing the scripts or making the things. And so I worry about what that does to, like our perception of change or progress and also what that does to sort of unsettle or disrupt or um, recalibrate or redistribute resources and wealth. Like, I just don't know if that is happening based on what we're seeing reflected Mm -hmm. in our various feeds. So I I think that's like the two ideas I'm trying to hold in my mind. So I think on one hand, there is this heightened visibility because of where we get news and how we get information and what we want to see. So all of us in this room are like thrilled. We're like, yes, A.D. Bryant, you know, so we're just sharing everything (laughs) that she does. We're like, go off, Lolly. Adafape, you know, like, so we're sharing, you know, but I mean, AD did produce that series. So that's, you know, she worked on adapting that series with Hulu and, and everything. So that is like a real shining, hardcore, amazing example. And then Sam Irby obviously worked on that show. You know, that's like a real example that we can point to. Um, but I don't know that that's the norm. And so I think that's like what worries me a little bit in, in trying to think about these bigger shifts. But I also think that, you know, we're just hungry for other stories and we're hungry for other perspectives. And I think when, when white people make good things, they still get recognized. Like I'm thinking a lot about um, Jodie Comer or Comer from Killing Eve. She oh, plays yeah. mm-hmm. Villanelle. Yeah, but I heard oh it's my amazing. gosh, it's she just is an exquisite physical actress, and she can just do so much with her face and. It's like all the movements of Tiffany Haddish, but just contained between forehead and chin. Like she's just unbelievably gifted at like conveying with looks and, you know, but she's incredible and she's a white woman and like I write for her. And so I think 
I just I feel like there's this bigger thing that's happening where there's just more people able to talk and share about what they're into. And so we're gravitating toward these stories that haven't gotten their time in the light before. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's like part of it, too. And it's also just interesting. I think we're just like I was listening to the Pop-Tarts, the Amber Tamlin, and she was talking about how like she just wants to also read other stories like does it she's no longer comfortable being on sets or being involved with things where it's like majority white and like that shifts too where she's just like her eyes are being opened to a reality that most of us have just accepted as the norm or part of the game or the reality that we have to deal with and there's also this awareness that like no actually we can pitch all people of color for the next six months and like that is valid and interesting Mm -hmm. and so there's this kind of consciousness shift or this consciousness awareness I guess that's happening too. You make frequent references on your show to your interest in woo-woo stuff, yes. which I find delightful. When we worked in here, you made us beautiful tea, mason, <laughs> mini mason jars full of dried herbal hibiscus. tea, yeah. hibiscus, and I cannot wait to drink it, sniff it, and live with mm-hmm. it, around it. You also talk about homeopathic remedies and herbalism, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how did this interest come about, and mm. what role does it play in your life? Yes. It's a couple of things. I mean, I think being a young reporter in, you know, a really fast-paced news environment during some of the most high-paced news cycles in recent memory, although, nope, there's no although. It's still there. I was going to say, I'm not in the newsroom now, but like I still feel inundated. Being being at a major news org, I still feel inundated with the news and that I'm obligated to pay attention to it. And I think it really took a huge toll on me. And Mm. before my 30th birthday, I just burnt out so hardcore. Mm. And I didn't know what it was. And there really wasn't anybody in my life to tell me what it was. And we weren't having those conversations. Like, I think now there's been a couple of really big pieces about burnout, what it looks like. And, you know, we have like Well Plus Good and then Goop and all these things that are teaching us about how to just at least be aware of what it means to take care of yourself. But I, I did not have any sense of that. Like, I didn't know even about getting enough sleep. I remember using the sleep tracker app for a little while and, you know, I was getting like five hours a night or something. Like I was just totally not taking care of myself. And I just started to get really ill and it started to look different ways. I was having really bad outbreaks of eczema. I was having really intense migraines that would translate into like nerve pain. Like Mm -hmm. I was just really getting sick and did not know what was going on. I was coping, you know, by drinking a lot and going out a lot and just anything I could do to not really deal with the stress felt like an appropriate outlet. And I just couldn't really figure it out. And then the New Museum did an exhibition a few summers ago with Simone Lee, who is an artist whose practice centers around, I don't even know how to describe her work. It, she's very invested in like the relationship between humans and nature and breaking down the binary between those two things. And part of her installation was just community acupuncture, community meditation, community wellness, like all these things. And I just went to everything. And I was like, I don't know about this world, but I need to know about this world. And that was sort of the game changer for me because I just met a lot of people that have stayed in my life and who I now am in a community with very much offline to do like energy work, mindfulness, like acupuncture. I mean, these are things that are prohibitively expensive in New York. And so it's become a personal mission too to try to think about how to introduce people in my life or people that know of my work to the affordable versions of that and think about why it's helpful and where they can go and what it can do. And I think it's just realizing that small acts of care are really beneficial for me and really help me reorient my life away from work. I remember it's one of these memories that's like it's a sense memory. Like I can see, hear, smell and taste it. I was listening to the still processing episode that came out right after the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. I was on the subway and you and Wesley were very audibly emotional. Mm -hmm. I believe there were actual tears Mm -hmm. that I could hear. And I just started crying on Mm -hmm. the subway and like nobody even had to wonder what I was crying about. I feel like there was like so many people crying on the subway that whole week that it was just like a Moshe attack. I was thinking about it in hindsight and was wondering if there is any pressure on you as a journalist to not bring any emotionality to reporting or Mm. if you if you are given a certain latitude to be as emotional as you want to be and how did you get there? And how do you feel about bringing your personal emotions into 
uh, your reporting. Well, it's funny, right? Because there's like there are definitely emotions that are helpful as a as a reporter and as a journalist. And I feel like I've really honed that kind of spidey sense and that like intuition that you get as an editor, as an, as a reporter, as a like a cultural critic about like what is going to hit and what's going to be good and like what you should be paying attention to. You know, like oh, mm-hmm. this is someone who you kind of get that like tingly okay this person we should cover they're going to be a big deal we should yeah. write about them we should Callie's be on this spidey sense is yes. so <laughs> sharply honed on that i always say that Callie lives in the future Ooh. Callie was the very first person who mentioned who i heard the words cardi b from and you cool. were jenna were the second person that i heard the words <laughs> cardi b from. and i was late i was late so you were ahead of me and like, now I feel the words like... definitely megan the stallion if we don't get on that we'll miss the boat yes oh megan yeah the stallion. Megan the stallion is so cool yeah <laughs> she's crushing it she's crushing it yeah um, As you were saying, I'm really grateful for the ways in which I've been rewarded just personally of really trusting my gut and then feeling like, wow, that story dropped at exactly the right moment. And so that's happened enough over the course of my career that I trust that feeling. And so that's so exciting because I also think I don't know, like I don't I don't think that's necessarily taught. I mean, it can't be taught really, but it's not prioritized. Like I didn't mm-hmm. go to J school, but I don't know if. They tell you, like, always trust your gut. Maybe they do. I feel like that's something they would say. But it it just feels like the kind of thing that you're not, like, if you feel really strongly about something, you might be biased. Versus if you feel really strongly about something, that might be a hunch. overlooking something that's because you don't want to see it. Exactly. And so that is something that's just, like, part of my own personal value system or ideology. It's, like... You know, it's kind of like when you go apartment hunting in New York, you just like know it when you see it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you're like, this will work. Um, so there's that. And then I think, yeah, I think I don't know. Like, I'm I'm not a super emotional person. And I think a lot of the work of my adult life has been learning how to lean into that vulnerability and how to lean into, you know, not being afraid to get overly overly anything and I I think I was really conditioned kind of coming up and not wanting to mess up and being in you know predominantly white teams of reporters mostly men especially covering technology that I never wanted to seem like unprofessional or like not be taken seriously or dumb and I, I think I've also just that thing that happens with the age where you kind of start to redefine success and what it means to you mm-hmm. and you want to be the person you are in every capacity. You don't want to have to code switch as much. You don't want to have to put on different hats for different rooms. And we all still have to do that a little bit. But mm-hmm. you also just kind of get like, I don't know, I was watching The Birdcage last night. And just because it's now <laughs> gosh, on Netflix or whatever. And like the whole thing is like the whole tension in that movie is like whether or not Calista Flockhart's family can accept Robin Williams and Nathan Lane as these like flamboyant South Beach gay ass Miami dudes. And they... They kind of figure out very quickly they can't hide who they are. And I just was watching that and I was thinking, yes, it's like that's the point of life in some ways. It's just like you can't really – you spend like the first half of your life trying to figure out who you are and then the second half of your life trying to make sure you're not really hiding it or comporting it or repackaging it for anybody else, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think is the upside of social media is that you get to see so many people living in so many different kinds of ways that it does open your eyes. So you no longer feel the only one of anything. That's right. That's right. You might still be the only one in your personal environment, but at least you know there are others like you. On our last episode that we just taped, we were talking to um, the host of that podcast, Guys We Fucked. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about how someone was talking to them about how her particular kink was watching videos of women giving birth. Right. That's what got her off. And then... They talked about that on their show and they got like a dozen emails from other women who also that was their kink and they didn't know. And I was like, wow, like there really is there really is a little club for everyone, everyone, for every single person. So I was um, recently talking with a colleague about natural birth and I was like, oh, I'm really interested in natural birth. I want to be a mom. Like, you know, we're just talking about all the things that come with it. And she was like, well, you don't you think you want a natural birth, but like you really don't know. And I was like. I think I know. Like, I mean, I if something shifts, like maybe I won't be able to have one, but I'm like pretty down to try. Like, I'm like, I'm not like I naive. Know I like free drugs. You know, you like free drugs. <laughs> yeah, I know drugs are at. cool, and if it, you know, but it was also just like I'm open to it, you know. But she was mm-hmm. really like, you should, you should follow all these like natural birth Instagrams, and then, and then 
call me and I was like oh what are they so I started following all these natural birth Instagrams mm-hmm. so it'll be like you'll be scrolling through your feed and it's like someone's like finsta like in their bed on Sunday and then like someone's like beautiful trip in Maui and then it'll be like a, a six second just like crowning <laughs> and I'm like I really love it though like I think I feel like birth is this thing that's so mystified and I don't I don't have any kids I don't know if you have children or given birth but it's this thing that no one talks about like in detail like even and I guess maybe that's part of it like it's very hard to talk about in detail because mm-hmm. it's this thing that happens to you you know and, but I've grilled so many of my friends who've given birth and like I still don't really know what happens so these Instagrams are like this real education have you seen yeah. the Ricky Lake documentary I have seen the Ricky Lake documentary which was good that was a yeah. good reason that was like but I think it was so long ago too like yeah, I kind of quite some time I wasn't like thinking about childbirth I feel then. like I could handle it if it's in the water in the water <laughs> yeah yes I know. I've been in the delivery room for two of my friends giving birth, holding the feet, having oh the feet push oh, up against wow. my hand. Amazing. And it's really like, wow, humans are animals. Yes, yes. <laughs> like you yes, don't really yes. confront that as much as I think, except for I in that moment. And it's so beautiful. scared I'd throw up on their baby. Yeah. You would not throw up on their baby. You would do just fine. It's beautiful. It's magical. But there's also part of me that was full of rage. Like, I can't believe. The creator of the universe made this be the way that people <laughs> reproduce. Like, this is so unfair to women. This is like fucking raw. I can't Whoa. believe it. It's intense. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's beautiful and it's a miracle. And it's like, but I was like, <laughs> there's no better way other than to rip the bottom out of a human woman. Yeah. Like, I, I got, I felt mad. Yeah, that's because fair. they're my friends. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. an emotional journey. Mm-hmm. It was a journey. Getting back to the <laughs> the issues at hand, um, we're all reporting during the era of Me Too and Times Up. Mm-hmm. Personally, I find it occasionally traumatic when I'm reckoning with surviving R. Kelly and leaving Neverland and feeling like it's a professional obligation to immerse totally. in those. Uh, Efforts of documentary filmmaking, both of which I thought were very well done. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also had to contend with weird stuff, like people trying to equate Cardi B's behavior as a sex worker with Bill Cosby. Man, that Cardi B shit got me so tight. How, as pop yeah. culture journalists, can we navigate this cultural moment responsibly? It just feels like it's all just going off the rails a little bit. I kind of want to hear Callie on this. Dude, this Cardi like B shit thoughts. got me really pissed off. <laughs> Look, I get, I've gotten a lot of arguments over the last couple of days about the Cardi B. Because what she Explain the Cardi B thing for anybody who so has Cardi not B caught up to Cardi B in a video said that when she was a stripper, she would men would want to have sex with her. She'd take them to the hotel and she would, you know, under the guise that they would have sex, drug them and rob them. So God, she did not say that. Oh my God, Cardi, you did not know that. Oh my, I've been God. offline. I've been Ooh, offline. You're like this. Is, yeah, got me so angry. So that's fucked up and all. But people are like, and that's why people was say, were saying that she was like Bill Cosby because she was out. But this oh, is leaving out people. the rape part. Right. right, right, like right, that's right. like yeah, oh, interesting. Yeah, it's fucked up to drug and rob people. But like, there's so many other famouses who have robbed people, and we. We just mm-hmm, like, well, mm-hmm. all right, you robbed someone. Moving on mm-hmm, to the next mm-hmm. thing. Like, fucking, what's his face? The Rob DMX. He's still, he's doing fine. Mm-hmm, He'd have mm-hmm. an arm robbery on a gas station. Yeah. But I think what's getting it's always guys that are so bugged out and yes. doing the, the jump comparison. Totally. And it's because they now are like, roofies work on men? Mine. <gasps> blown. Yeah. So now they have to, that's what's really getting them shook is that their agency was taken away. That, now they have to watch their drinks that they are now possibly could be a victim to something like that mm. happens to women all the time. And some dude really tried to go wild on me because I was like, look, are we talking about the book of face on the book of face? I was like, <laughs> you know, not to say that I would want to be a victim of any crime, but having been roofied several times, I will tell you, I would rather be roofied and robbed than violently robbed, not to say uh, drugging isn't some sort of violence, but, you know, like physically knocked the fuck out and robbed or drugged and raped. I mean, it, that sounds, it seems like the laziest way to rob someone. <laughs> and It does make it a lot easier, certainly. You know, mm. getting, mm. it does suck to get roofied because you have no idea what happened. But if, if I get to pick, I'm going 
robbed and roofied all mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. It's just such a crazy leap. So I think it, the guys are just shook that they've never had to to think that they could get that overpowered they could be a by a woman. Yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. what's got them all bugging out. I think there's this feeling of like pop culture and the internet keep going after these like big name men and taking them down but they're not the only ones doing things that are bad and it's Mm -hmm. just like we can talk about all these things as standalone separate instances like I don't understand where the desire comes to try to equate something that Cardi B is doing Mm -hmm. which is can be its own dissertation to like what happened systematically over decades with Bill Cosby like abuse of power abuse of privilege abuse of like systems of Hollywood whereas Cardi B I don't know. I don't want to try to justify her actions. I need to read a little bit more about it. But I'm just also like, I feel like they're not the same thing. They're not. They're so far from the same thing. Um, I also hate when people are like, well, this is happening. We should be focused on this. It's like, bitch, I can focus on yes. two things. Yes. Or more than two. I can focus on a lot of shit at the same time. <laughs> we don't have to just go on one task. Yeah. I would also love to, you know, read more and talk more about women who abuse power, you know, and I mean, that is, I I don't know, I also feel like the way having this conversation about me too is if men are the only ones who assault and are violent and abuse people. And like, I think that's also not helping any future Mm -hmm. generations by limiting it in that way. Um, And we also really only talk about, I mean, Michael Jackson was the first mainstream instance I'd really seen taken seriously of men abusing young boys, right? Like that's the whole Brian Singer thing that was like beautifully reported and like laid out and like disturbing and and graphic and detail, um, exquisite detail, like, uh, you know, really hardcore reporting in The Atlantic not too long ago. I feel like it it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. anywhere. Is it because people Um, don't have the feelings for Brian Singer that they have for Michael Jackson? I think that that's real. a big part of it. Did you ever see that documentary? It's it's a real zinger. Um, an open secret. I didn't. That was about Brian Singer, right? Yeah. It was about oh, Brian okay, okay. Nobody watched it well, I don't <laughs> because even, yeah. they they paid to get it. So I think Weinstein or someone paid for it, so it didn't to get kill it. full release. Oh, yeah. I see. But it is a it's it's a tearjerker. Oh wow! Watch wow. Yeah, don't watch on your period. How yeah. do you feel about cancel culture? There's so much good art made by so many fucked up people. Mm-hmm. Does it do any good to boycott work by abusers? Callie has strong feelings about R. Kelly that she can no longer listen to him anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm with that. Michael Jackson was my ultimate when I was growing up. I kissed his poster every night before Aww. I went to bed. It's like not an easy time. Yeah. I really tried with R. Kelly. I was like, well, I'll just listen to the double up on CD. He's getting no clicks. Mm -hmm. Nobody has to know that I'm doing this by myself. And then as soon as I put, you know, like just the lyrics of Real Talk were in my head and I was like, no, they're fighting with a child. He's fighting with a fucking child. And then the hair braider, I was like, oh, you were molesting your fucking hair braider. So every sync, because it's a diary. Like his music was his diary. Some of his stuff isn't sex related, but with R. Kelly, every single fucking song, every song. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is a bad analogy, but I have learned, you know, in the last like 10 years or so of my life, that I am lactose intolerant. So I avoid dairy. Sometimes I have goat dairy products. Sometimes I have like sheep's milk cheese. Dairy doesn't suit me, so I avoid it. And I don't need other people in my life to avoid it. I'm fine if people in my life around me want to have ice cream. Like I'm just like, do you, like your life, your gut, your choice. Like do whatever feels best for you. I think for me when it comes to culture, like I'm also going to pick and choose the things that make me sick to my stomach and avoid them. And so Mm -hmm. R. Kelly is someone like I... I am horrified and repulsed, and I think I, I just I can't even if it if it came on at a wedding like I wouldn't shame anybody about it. I would just leave. Like I would I just shame a bunch I of people leave. at a karaoke the other night. Yeah, I was and like, I think that's valid. Too. I just walked over and I was like, really? I think that's valid keep too. One, yeah, when R. Kelly song could stand, you. it was like on the third, and I was like, yeah. I have to stop this. Yeah, you are ruining my night. And that's I think that's super real too. I I mean I just. Like, you know, Michael Jackson is everywhere. And I, you know, I was traveling recently and there were all these Michael Jackson posters, I guess, for some, I don't know, something that was happening on a local streaming service. And Mm -hmm. it was like hard. I was like, oh, wow, I guess the like, you know, the awareness is either has not come to this part of the world or people just don't care because he's so big here. I was in Mexico City. I was like, maybe people don't care. I don't know. And I, I don't know. It was like hard to kind of see that and to be like, you know, I think we have to reckon with his legacy Mm -hmm. um 
But if Beyonce moonwalks, like I'm not mad at her for making that choice or doing that. I don't know. Like I just I feel like I just want to be responsible for my own choices. I think it's really sound and responsible and smart of streaming services to deprioritize and in some cases remove artists. Like I was in a restaurant the other day and I was th- like the algorithm just got on Michael Jackson and I was like, what is happening? And it was just like going through the Jackson 5, going through the later years. I was just It's like, literally painful when that happens now. It's painful. Yeah. It's so Like painful. I don't want to confront these emotions in, in Walgreens. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I don't. I'm not, I'm not, yes, I don't. <laughs> I feel like we can give him a breather for a while and that he he will be able to be resurrected. But we just always have to remember when we we tell the children about Michael Jackson, don't get it twisted. He was also a piece of shit, you know, like, yeah, artist, a terrible person It's possible to do both. But I feel better about it because he's dead. Yeah, (laughs) it's easier. It's easier. With R. Kelly, it's like, do not. Do not play anything yeah. because it's going to give him money. Yeah, and all and these abusers were also abused, and it's just yes. it's, that's also yeah. a dynamic to it. Yeah, I think I'm eager for you know a much broader, more nuanced dialogue around like not just thinking about artists, but also clothing makers. Like, where are our clothes made? Like, where is our soap made? Like, mm-hmm. there's so much. That we have to try to be conscious of. It is very overwhelming. I think I, I've said this on, on Slow Processing a few times, so I'm sorry I've heard this before. But I do think that cancel culture is a response in some ways to just – I don't want to have to figure out if I need to care about MIA anymore. Can I cancel her? Yes, great. Moving on. Like I mm-hmm. think we're trying to figure out what we don't have to care about so that we can just like So we can not think loads. about it? Yeah, because yeah. I think we're like – Trying to think about, like, yeah, Jesse Smollett. Like, how do I need to feel about him? Like, someone tell me so I can just decide if I can devote my precious energy resources to something else, yeah. you know? When it comes to cancel culture, I, in the book of face argument I was having, uh, this one girl was like, well, then what is canceled? Like, who does she, does she have to kill somebody for you to cancel her? And I was mm. like, heads up. I think everybody can, as long as they're working on themselves, like, Get some punishment that for the crime, whatever you committed. And then if they are working on themselves, we're supposed to allow them to work on themselves. Otherwise, if somebody rapes someone and then we're like, okay, you're out of jail, you're a raper, so you, you can't do anything mm-hmm. ever with your life, what are they going to do? Now they're just going to go around raping people because mm-hmm. that's the only thing you told them they can do. So, like, yeah, yeah Cardi B can apologize and try to make amends. R. Kelly is still in denial. So yeah, that's real. He can't get uncanceled until he admits. That is a good point. Yeah, and Cardi is thoughtful. Like I can imagine that at some point she'll address this and think about it. And she's she's not, you know, I, I just don't think she's above reckoning with something that she's done that's pretty messed up and dealing with it. Um, and she'll be better off for it in the public eye. I do think like the cancel culture argument doesn't leave enough room to talk about rehabilitation and restorative justice those are the most important yeah people are uncomfortable in the bike scene that i hang out with there's this uh i was going we were going to talk about like supporting the community and stuff and like how if if you have been me too'd you can work to be a better person Mm -hmm. you know we'll we'll work with you to be a better person you don't have to just be ousted from the community right we would rather you not rape people so let's work with that write that book (laughs) what to do when you've been me too (laughs) and i think a lot of dudes got confused they were like we can talk about it and oh yeah and i was like yeah that's part of being a better person yeah you have to like learn what you did Figure out how not to do it. Figure out how to affect people, and then make change in yourself. Sure. And the dudes are like, "What?" I know. <laughs> Blowing I minds, know. Callie. <laughs> Ooh, ethics. <laughs> and this this moment in culture really requires like a a type of emotional intelligence that you're talking about, and like a type of um, vulnerability and like willingness to be intimate and have intimacy and like be open that I don't think our culture has prepared us for at all Mm -hmm. but it makes me excited I think I'm still thinking about this question of like how does it feel to be like dealing with culture in this moment I'm just like dang there's a real opportunity are you a feminist oh yeah of course (laughs) definitely (laughs) how has working at the times shaped your feminism um you know it's interesting because it's it's more than the times it's like the awareness of how systems of privilege and hierarchies work, the ways in which perceptions of women and what success means and how you're supposed to be influence 
the kind of access that you can get. You know, I think I was really keen, keenly aware of how it felt to be me trying to move in Silicon Valley and mm. having a type of hyper visibility and like the ways ideas were projected onto me because it was the only way people could justify my presence. So mm. what I'm speaking about is like I'd be doing, oh God, I remember this so clearly. I was doing an interview and I was at a party and I was just getting quotes or just maybe even taking notes. I don't know. I was like talking to someone about something in the corner and clearly had like the steno notebook out. Like, mm-hmm. You know, and was like listening and taking notes. And then someone came up and was like, I don't want to interrupt you once you're done getting his number. And I was like, I am a goddamn journalist for The New York Times. So, you know, and I forget (laughs) who it was now, but I would always like say their name. I'd be like, this this motherfucker, you know, like I would just really (laughs) say it and like shame this person. Like, you know, and be like, this happened to me or like in, in a meeting once with an executive, his assistant was like, gave us coffee and was like, do you need any sweetener? And he was like, I don't know, like my company's sweet enough or something. And I was just like, you would not say this to me had I been any other member of my team like just mm. feeling furious about just like the the situations that I had to be in or found myself in to do my job it was really intense and so I think so it was like kind of the, uh, the combination of that and so making myself available for other young reporters always women always people of color to talk to me if a white male emails me I probably don't have time for you I'm so sorry like there's so <laughs> many people you can talk to I feel bad about that but I have a limited number of hours in the day so like always making time to go you know speak to journalism students or talk to women specifically you know that's like part of my own personal activism you know as a journalist you can't be that active in in the ways that you might want mm-hmm. to or ways right. that feel good to you so a lot of my personal work is trying to talk to women about things like imposter syndrome or notions of you have to fake it till you make it which doesn't work for everybody what are your hopes and dreams for the rest of 2019 what's coming up oh like my 2019 your personal 2019 oh that's such a sweet question <laughs> i think that maintaining sanity is so high on the list Mm. I feel like my blood pressure is rising and I and then like not in a jokey way like I actually feel personally worried about my own health and so I'm trying to like really slow down and it's hard to do as everyone in this room knows it's really hard to do living in New York being in media having a full-time job it's like there's such an expectation of availability and output so that's like a huge hope and dream for me for this year that I can kind of find ways to sleep more and rest more and be okay saying no like that's the Mm. thing I'm learning too is like how to be okay with not getting everything done and like Uh it's not the end of the world actually if you need another day or like if you actually can't come to this thing you know just like trying to be really okay with that and then I also just really hope to take more pleasure from life I feel like I've been living in New York so long that now everything is just so like I don't know, but I want to participate in the city more. I want to see mm. more concerts. And not for work, because I consume so much culture for right. work that I think when I'm not working, that I'm just like, I'm offline or I'm in a bathtub or I'm just like, I don't think of it as like pleasurable anymore. And so I'm just like, I want to eat a really good meal and I want to like see good theater and I want to hear, I want to see Cardi B and like, I don't know. I just want to really spend the rest of 2019 trying to find little moments for just for joy in a way that's not um, monetized. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. You know? Before we let you go, we have to ask all of our guests, what you're watching? (laughs) And when we say what you're watching, it's a very broad question. It is books and movies and television and music and music videos and um, blogs and every single shred of pop culture that you're consuming. We want to know about it because we know that if you like it, that it's cool. Oh, I so I tried really hard because I listened to Pop-Tarts. And so I know you always ask us this question. And so I was like, let me come up with a really good, sophisticated answer. <laughs> and then I was like, I don't know. For me, like, I'm going to keep it real. Because, like, I really love Survivor right now. Like, I'm a diehard Survivor watcher. And I, I feel like it was still on. this is what everybody says. People either <laughs> either you are really into Survivor or you're just like, I was obsessed was that when it on? first came out. Yeah. Can I tell you that I was... Like, right before it came out, I was freelancing as an assistant for someone at the Discovery Channel. She Mm -hmm. was, like, a a producer, and her husband 
came we were she was working out of her house and I was her assistant and her husband came home and he's like I just was at this weird production meeting for this thing it's like a game show but the contestants are literally stranded on an island cool. would you watch that Emily and I was like I would watch the fuck out of yes. it and I did and he was like all right I'm gonna think about that <laughs> yeah it's bless you for that then. I think it's on I think I mean I know it's on but I think it's better than ever like I actually have been watching the last couple of seasons and it's so good and you know it won't surprise anyone but that the reason I love it so much is that the people that tend to go the farthest are the ones who actually are good people uh-huh. like the villains they might be really strategic good game players and they might have the physical like brute force to muscle through some of those challenges but as the viewer and as the as kind of watching how the show ends up thinning out like people want to feel good about who they go to the end of the end of the game mm-hmm. with and they because the show's been on the air for so long and because there've been so many notorious villains that type of behavior isn't prioritized and it's really it's not valorized and they'll have respect for how somebody had a cutthroat ruthless game but they're they have this like really interesting sense of decorum and etiquette and like how things are done mm-hmm. um and what it means to like not keep your word and keep your word and you know I don't know it's like it's it is I don't know what it says about me that that's the most relaxing thing that I watch on television, but I just <laughs> I find it to be so soothing. And you just feel so good when someone does the right thing. Like, it's just mm-hmm. not this, like, yeah. cutthroat show. It's like when someone's like, you know what? I will give up my rice so that everybody can eat. Or like, you know what? I'm going to go fishing for the team today because, like, this is this morale is too low. You're just like, yes. I want to go fishing for that. I want to be like that. I want to go fishing Support for the team. Support your community. Yes. Like, ride for them. Um, so that's like my addiction right now. I watch Drag Race religiously, and I love the Tatiana remix with Cardi B. That video is so good. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Like, I love that outfit. Oh, oh my yes, god! Yes. <laughs> Bust down Tatiana. I just I, it's such a good song, but the video is so good, and I'm so here for this whole yeehaw moment between her and Solange and all the like Alameda, all the Solange content coming out. I'm just like, I think there's also this, you know, like you were kind of saying at the beginning of this chat, Emily, like. We're remembering or we're, like, re-engaging with the ways in which our ideas of, like, what something like cowboy boots and, you know, yeehaw culture belongs to. Like, mm-hmm. it's, yep. you know, it's like, the that's why, like, people love the Dixie Chicks and Beyonce performance so much at the Country Music Awards because it was a total F you to the whole audience that, like, ban the Dixie Chicks but then Beyonce's so good and then it's like this perfect harmony you can't deny that like Beyonce gets country and that country's black too. And Beyonce correct me if I'm wrong wrote you a letter after you discussed Lemonade am I right about that? Yeah I mean she didn't write it. And how are you still alive? I know it was a really but that was a really tough moment though because I think as, as like the culture of the times too is like not being bigger than the place and not trying to be you know you work at a place where people are literally covering Ebola like you work at a place where people fall out of helicopters mm-hmm. people get yeah. taken captive so when you're singled out it was hard it was a tough moment now I, I feel really proud of it it's like framed in my house I have the blossoms from the orchid that her team sent as well <laughs> and that was really sweet I think but it also really opened my eyes too to like this other thing that's happening where on the other side of our business, you know, people who have historically only been covered by white men are being like, you know, because I was, it was actually for formation. And I was on a, a round table with a, a couple other journalists who were men, all men. And so mm. I think she was trying to be like, yes, more women, more black women talking mm-hmm. about me and like my work. But yeah, so I, I'm, I'm very invested right now. I'm from Virginia, as we all are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the Northern Virginia doesn't feel like the South. It doesn't feel very country. Yeah. But there's like threads of, you know, like I grew up line dancing. Um, Billy Ray Cyrus was huge in my family. And so oh I my think God. they do line dances to everything. <laughs> to everything. I've <laughs> friend Amy once in a <laughs> with me once and we were at some karaoke and she was like they have a lion dance to this Nicki Minaj song and I was like they all have a lion dance for, for everything every it's song. like yes like country culture I grew up very steeped in country music and country culture and bluegrass and blues too and just all of these things that are not separate from each other and so I'm I'm really loving this like total embracing of yeah to see how culture I just finished the book um the letters between Pat Parker and Audrey Lord. Oh, wow. Did you guys get that? No. It was, it was recently reissued. I feel like they they should have sent a box of these to bus that they haven't. They should get on it. Um, but it's just, it's a very slim 
it's a slim collection, and it's edited by Mecca Jamila Sullivan, who's an amazing black queer lesbian academic and archivist and just someone who isn't, I don't think, as celebrated um, as like a living icon as she should be. But the the book is just these letters between Pat Parker and Audre Lorde, who are both these poets working at the same time. They're both lesbians. They're both black women. And Pat is really encouraging Audrey to come out, be out, be open. And, you know, even that is dynamic because we think yeah. of Audrey in this one particular way. There are all these letters where they talk about, like, their friendship falling apart and Audrey's getting more success. And it's really like, you know, I don't know. I think a lot about the archive and what happens when all these incredible conversations are happening on Facebook or on Twitter or places that are disintegrating in real time because they can't mm. necessarily be... Um, they're so massive that the yeah. that the cost of storing them. There was that news article not too long ago about how a lot of MySpace pages are expiring or like archives oh, right. are being yeah. lost, songs are being lost. And so, you know, that's expected, but we just take it all for granted that everything is going to be in the cloud somewhere someday. Mm-hmm. So that's been really motivating me to like start a letter writing practice with a couple of friends nice. and not and not go too ham on it, but like just try to like do like a letter or so like every other month so it's not like it's not like a rigorous thing but yeah. just trying to be like here's what and it's you know there are things we share in our letters that we don't talk about in person or that we don't talk over voice notes I'm obsessed with voice notes uh, but those disappear too you'd be really really savvy to keep them so yeah <laughs> thank you so much for doing this interview with no, us my pleasure. also thank you so much for all you do professionally I feel like oh. you have this amazing platform and what you do with it is so inspiring oh goodness you cover so much culture in such a thoughtful way that i feel like i'm not as passive a consumer of Mm. pop culture as maybe i would have been if i wasn't following your work you Mm. inspire me to dig deeper to think longer to think about how the culture that i uplift could affect other people for good or for ill. I think about um, the persuasive power of pop culture more and in a better way because of the work that you do. Oh, my goodness. And you're such an inspiration. And I'm so happy with uh, all that you've done with your career and your life. Thank you. Well, I'm so happy that Bus is doing its thing and still out there and still as important to me as it was when I was a wee one coming up. So I'm just proud of you two and the work that you do. And it's so important. And yeah, I don't know. We're doing it. We're doing the damn thing. We're doing it. (laughs) We're going to take the shortest of breaks. And when we come back, Callie is going to ask me and I'm also definitely going to ask her what (laughs) What you watching. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. And we're back. Hello. Hello, Callie. So uh, we met Jenna Wortham at the New York Times and did that interview. And she was an unrelenting delight. That was... It was... Joy, just a joy dripping with joy. Yes, it was so nice to finally meet her after all of our many years of correspondence together. And uh, because we were at the New York Times and we were using their highly in-demand equipment bay, we did not record what you're watching between you and I there. No, we so, did the magic of radio. And that's right. Time so travel. We're now in a second location. They always say never follow a hippie to a second location. <laughs> it took us two days to get here and we are in the second location. Now we're at Chemoi, my home. With cats. I'm meeting Emily's cats. Callie's meeting my cats, Irving and Velma, for the first time. Our luscious audio engineer, Logan Del Fuego, is here with us. Wearing furry feet slippers. We're keeping it casual. So, Callie, tell yes. me. Yes. What you watching? Well, obviously, we got to talk about us. You've seen us. I've seen us. 
he, she, it, we, they saw us. I think we have very different impressions of it. You go first. Well, I, it was a good movie. The acting is great. Mm-hmm. The writing was really, really good. It was, it was really funny. I thought the end had some plot holes. Okay. I let's couldn't get let's past try that. to discuss this without being spoilers. Can See, we do that, it? I tried to think about a way to do that. But anyway, there's some things that I, there's no way I can do it actually. That I just think didn't add up when the big twist happened. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the movie was spectacular. For those of you who have not seen us yet, it is the new Jordan Peele movie. And uh, he wrote it, he directed it, he produced it. And it stars Lupita Nyong'o as a woman who goes to a vacation house with her husband and her kids. And she's on edge. She's agitated. We've seen very similar movies like this before. She's having some uh, anxiety flashbacks to a time in her youth when she went to the boardwalk in California at the beach and... um, something vaguely terrifying happened to her and she's flashing back to that time. Um, and that's making her agitated now because they're in that general vicinity once again, only now she's grown up and she has a family. So she's trying to hold it together until a family of four that looks exactly like her family shows up outside their vacation home and terror ensues. Um, There's a really good, I forget what, website it was that had a uh what do you call it? easter egg list from all the things that it would reference because there's so many references mm-hmm. in like just the carnival scene or the fairground scene oh yeah from what like carnival of souls and stuff no like there's the michael jackson um yeah there's shirt and then stuff. it's switched inside out into a different color later then there's like the guy behind the the game machine is wearing i don't remember what shirt some fucking metal sh- thing that had come out that year there's a bunch of they talk about the, the lost boys when they're like they're filming a yeah there's a whole bunch of weird referential things in that and then a bunch of other references to other movies just in the way he shoots the opening scene i will say also that our guests for this episode jenna wortham and her co-host Wesley Morris on still did a processing. Wonderful, wonderful takedown on they it. They did an amazing analysis of the film on still processing. I recommend anybody who's interested in us. But and it's spoilers left and right. Yes, there are spoilers. And also, the thing that I like the best about their analysis is they drew a lot of parallels between us and Beloved, which Beloved. was great. Now I, I felt- really want to re- rewatch Beloved at, or read the book. I, th- I think I let someone borrow the book. Beloved is one of my favorite novels of all time. And when the movie came out, I thought it was really well done. And I was furious that the world didn't seem to agree. I loved it. Pretty much ignored. And I thought Oprah (laughs) was great. It was great. So, yeah, if you look at uh, us through the lens of Beloved, it also tells a very potent tale about latent trauma. And what happens when it comes rushing into the foreground after lurking in your background? What else are you watching? Then I watched that really terrible movie, The Dirt. What's The Dirt? Oh, my God, dude. It's that Motley Crue biopic. (gasps) Oh, the Motley Crue biopic. Is it on Netflix? Yeah. And it was really bad. (laughs) It was. (laughs) I, I mean, my only note was... Man, these dudes were pieces of shit. <laughs> but the the fucked up thing is, is they were way worse than they were even portrayed in the movie. Like the movie is just like casually one of them like punches his girlfriend in the in the face or something, and you're like, well, that's fucked up. Nary is there like any of these like drugging a woman and making her think that she's having sex with a different member in the band rumors and shit. When you're salacious dramatization of your band doesn't even scratch the surface of how shitty you were then you know that you were really shitty and in but keeping hold of the true shittiness they did only give like one woman a name in the entire film and Ugh. that was heather locklear's character pam anderson Figures. isn't even 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 Wh- talked about what 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 was it pre-pam <laughs> no that's bullshit. Dude, it was bad. I advise you strongly not to watch the movie. There's nothing. 
Doesn't sound Nothing like to I see will. Here, folks. <laughs> Move it along. Move it along. Nothing Move to it see here. Is it? I must I must ask. Yes. What are you watching? I'm so glad you asked. Well, inspired by you and your uh passion for the lively arts. I saw some live shows oh. since last we spoke, and two of them were in lovely, glittering Las Vegas. Yes, you went on a vacay. I went on, on a, a birthday hey, vacay. Hey, hey, birthday vacay to Las Vegas. I got into it. I did so many things, and yet there's so many things that I still want to do. It, that place is great. Tell me everything. First, I saw All Shook Up, which was an Elvis, tri- Elvis tribute show. At Planet Hollywood. And here's the thing. I thought that it was going to be multiple Elvises. That's what I was thinking. It would be like Cher Show. But it was actually just one Elvis with a live band. Um, it was performed by a gentleman named Travis Allen, who is a three-time winner of the Best of Las Vegas Best Impersonator Award. And Was he up to snuff? He was very much up to, up to snuff for a number of reasons. Not only did he look like him, and he didn't appear to have any disturbing plastic surgery. If in some way he surgerized that it was <laughs> good surgery because he didn't seem um like visibly surgically altered um do you, do you think he was like kardashian um doing the makeup he may have had some contouring, contouring yeah. but mostly elvis impersonators either do like a very caricaturish like oh uh-huh, like kind of thing <laughs> yeah. or they're going to lip sync but oh. this guy actually sang all the songs and sounded just like Elvis. And that's very difficult. He also did all the dances and not in like an exaggerated right, lampooning way. It was like in a way in which you could tell that he had watched live performances thousands of times and literally memorized not only every dance move not ever not only every song but literally so every like the Rimi, gesture the Remy malik <laughs> yeah he was like the Rami malik of yeah. elvis Rami malik Remy malik <laughs> yeah like he he had memorized the parts in songs when elvis had performed them live when he like stopped and laughed i love this and, level like, of commitment the commitment was over the top it was sparkle motion and um I have watched some of these performances obsessively, so I could tell that he was obsessively doing, like, laughing the way Elvis laughed. Yeah, you're a big Elvis stan, right? Talking to the band at the times when he would have talked to the band. Like, just certain details were over the top. And I was like, man, Travis Allen, you got it going on. And... He could see my enthusiasm. I was wearing my Pac-Man dress. He complimented my Pac-Man dress from the stage. And then... He, he must have saw just the the shine in the eye when the you were shine like, in the eye. Look at him doing the thing. <laughs> he did the gold jacketed Elvis with the swiveling hips in Act One, and then in Act Two, he brought out the full white jumpsuited nice. sideburns Elvis. And during white jumpsuited sideburns Elvis, he had his scarves and he was blotting his sweaty brow, and he leaned over and and reached out to me with a scarf, and I. Grabbed the other end of the scarf. Oh and my god! He pulled me close and kissed my face. No, and gave me Wait, the scarf. Really? And I felt feelings, even though he was impersonating <laughs> someone that I like and was not actually the person oh that I like. I still felt feelings. You were just saying this in front of the luscious. I'm saying like, it in front of the luscious Logan. He was there. He knows what happened. Keeping it real in the relationship. You got scarfed up. I got scarfed up. I got scarfed down. I still have the scarf. <laughs> you have the scarf. Oh I my own God. the I scarf. Love... I have the scarf. This is the best. You birthdayed, dude. <laughs> so yeah, if you're in Las Vegas, it's yeah. this this show plays every night at Planet Hollywood. This is the best um, review of a show. It's called I All Shook Go. I want to go see. Uh huh. Yeah. Also, whilst in Las Vegas, we saw Cypress Hill at House of Blues. Oh man! And they were pretty good. I will tell. I don't you know if this you is. You just said they were pretty good. Well, Ooh. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but have you ever gone to a show where the opening act is so bad it taints everything afterward? Yes. I said taint. Yeah, there was a comedy. Remember, we went to a comedy show once, and I didn't like one of the person's oh, humor. Oh, it was two dope queens, and I didn't like one of the jokes that, and it tainted the show for you. Yes, and then you, you weren't at that taping, and then you saw it live, a and you were one. like, mm-hmm. "I 
get why you were. Yeah. I was like, I don't really, I don't, I don't, I don't know about this. The opening band was called Hollywood Undead. They're like one of these rap oh, rock wait, no groups. No offense on, on Two Dope Queens. It wasn't them that made the joke. Right. No shade. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Two Dope Queens. But anyway, I have experienced openers and I'm like, nopers after that. Right. So the Hollywood Undead was opening for Cypress Hill and they were so bad. It was like, it made me not, not only angry, but also sad. And they were like telling the audience to fuck off and doing all kinds of shenanigans and like just going on for way too long and being generally terrible throughout. Um, One of the best things that I've watched on the boob tube since last time i talked to you was the act on hulu i need hulu it's based on the true the crime tale of Dee and gypsy rose blanchard um patricia arquette's in it chloe sevigny is in it um i don't want to say too much about it i don't want it to to spoil it for people but it's all about women and the ways that women can be unbelievably fucked up i'm telling you i know this case inside and out i've read the articles about it i watched the 2020 about it and it's still good and it is because that still cast riveting is great the cast is great it's really good i highly recommend it the act on hulu i know the story is fucked the fuck up yeah and also mother daughter crime yeah very interesting to me so i would say watch it and that my friend is what i've been watching a journey through time and space. And location. Yes. Thank you so much to our producer, Rachel Withers, the greatest producer of all. Yes. She will be leaving us for a literal voyage around the world. Yes. But this is the end. But until then, she's still the greatest producer of all. Well, she's still going to be the best producer, just not for us. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Um, I'd also like to thank Annie Tressler at the New York Times who taped the interview portion of this show. And, of course, our luscious audio engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Who's apparently a bald man with a goatee. Who listens to Cypress Hill. <laughs> and to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems. You cannot find Callie on Twitter. Do not even try. But I may start to Twitter account for Emily's cats. <laughs> Are you going to tweet as my cats? That would be hilarious. I may. You have to get to know them a little better before you can write in their voice. I'll have That's to tell you that. That's true. You can email us both. I'm at emilyrems at bus.com. I'm at calliew at bus.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. And we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mwah! Mwah!